My computer went to sleep, and I hope none of you are yet. You have to wait till I start before you go to sleep. I appreciate very much you being here, and I appreciate very much our reading as we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 really undergird everything that we are doing and everything that we're focusing on today. And so as we think about this idea of faith and connecting the dots, I want you to keep in the back of your mind, it is glad you made it, man. Um, he bought my supper last night, so I have to give him a shout out. And so uh, we're excited about being here. And, and I want you, as we move forward, to keep in the back of your mind Deuteronomy 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 and that idea of connecting the dots to the next generation. As we begin to think about that, I want you to think about who you trust. I don't know if we've got any new parents in the room. I'm trying to look around, see if I see any little ones. It's always been interesting when you have new parents. Because I don't know if you've noticed, like with the first child. Okay, with the first child, there is this. Our oldest child, Katie, is with us, and she's 27 now. Uh, the picture up on the screen, uh, she was probably about four and a half, and she's holding our younger daughter, Hannah, who is now 22, uh, she's holding her the first day that she came home from the hospital. Now, I want you to think about with the first child, as parents, we have this intense fear that they might, you know, find some bacteria. We're afraid that somebody might give them a germ and they might get sick. And so with that first child, it's often several weeks before you can get them to bring them out into public or bring them to worship services. And when they first bring them to worship services, it's like, they want you to wear a full hazmat suit, you know, like complete with the hood and the gloves and all that stuff, and only certain people can hold them. Now, when the second one comes along, that changes. By the third child, you just walk in the door, throw the baby up in there, and hope somebody catches them because you're tired. You haven't slept since that first child was born. But I want you to think about what it was like when you had that first child. And I, I remember vividly with us, and Katie had some complications at birth, and so that kind of added to some of those fears and so forth. And early on, I can remember the first time we went out, Cindy only felt comfortable when Katie stayed with family. And fortunately, we had some family live close enough that that was possible. But if you're a parent, you've got a child, who would you trust with that child? Because as a parent, I can tell you that for Cindy and I, the two most precious things in our lives, it's not about any of our possessions, it's not about what's in a bank account. It's not about any jobs or titles or whatever we might have had in our lives. And it's definitely not the dogs and the cats. It's Katie and Hannah Brothers. You could take everything else in my life. You can have everything I have. Except for Cindy, Katie, and Hannah. And with the most valuable thing in your life, the most valuable person in your life, who, do you, who did you trust to watch your baby for the first time when you went out? Because as you think about as a parent having to make that choice, okay, we're going out on our first date, or maybe it's just simply going to the store and you both want to go together. And you're making that decision about who you trust to leave with the most, per, the most per, precious person in your life with. Here's why I mention that. 
We all know God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And when we think about the idea behind that passage is that He gave His Son on a cross for our sins. But I want us to realize that before He gave His Son on a cross, He gave His Son in a feeding trough, in a barn where they kept the animals, or likely a cave, and He gave that Son to a family. If I understand the New Testament, while He continued to be God... Jesus never stopped being God. Think of those words of Thomas, who we claim to be the doubter. He has the most profound statement of who Jesus was in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. Yet Scripture is also equally clear that He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. He became a human being. He became human flesh, John 1 says, and dwelt among us. And so if Jesus fully became a human being and experienced life the way I experienced life as a human being and you experienced life as a human being, then when he was 10 seconds old, he didn't know calculus. He didn't know algebra. He, didn't, he knew what every other 10-second old child knew. Which meant that if he fully became a human being, and we know he emptied himself of some of his knowledge, because Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says what? He increased in wisdom. The pre-incarnate Logos, God the Son, you would never say of the eternal God the Son that He needed to increase in wisdom. But you would when He's a 10-second old baby. And so at age 12, they said He was increasing in wisdom. What that means is, it seems to me, is that Jesus through the interaction when God the Son came to earth and they gave Him the name Jesus, in an interaction between the Holy Spirit and the people surrounding Him, He had to go through some kind of process of rediscovering who He was. And I think that's the significance of what's happening in Luke chapter 2. He's saying, I get it. I am about my Father's business and I'm not talking about Joseph. The point I'm making is God has to trust somebody with that process. Yes, the Holy Spirit is involved in that process and God the Father is involved in that process, but He has to put him in a home if he's going to experience life like a human, as a human being. So I want you to think about the unbelievable level of trust that God has to have in a man and a woman to give them the mind-altering responsibility of raising the Messiah. We're wrestling today with connecting the dots, connecting faith to the next generation. I've been excited about being here and getting to visit with you and getting to hang out and get to spend time with Doug. And I didn't know until last night this was going to get to be here this morning. Got so many of the young men who've been a part of the future ministers camps that I've had the privilege to be a part of in, in two di three different places, I guess, in Tennessee. And I think of John and John and Scott and Thad and Billy and Caleb and there may be others. As I see their faith, I'm reminded of the people who lived into their lives to help them have that faith. And that's really what today is about. 
God entrusted some people in their lives to help them know Jesus. Now I want us to think about the trust. We talked about in Bible class, I like to have a biblical bullseye that we can hang on to. And I said with Bible class, as we talked about faith factors, I wanted you to hang on to Deuteronomy 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I wanted you to, to realize that retention is relational. That if we want them to retain their faith, the key is relationships with people who have faith. But today, I want you to think about Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 as we look at the backstory of the people God trusted. And I want you to wrestle with this question, would He choose me? Could He choose me? Why might God have chosen Joseph? Of all the people on the planet, he wasn't a man of popularity or prestige or power. He didn't have a high education. Why would God choose Joseph? I think an answer might be commands and commitment. So let's just think about a few simple examples. If we go to Luke chapter 2, Jesus is being presented. The king is coming to the capital city for the first time. This was likely when he was about 40 days of age. And there are two things happening here in Luke chapter 2. You have the sacrifices offered for the firstborn child, dedicating that firstborn child to God. You also have the sacrifices of purification happening. So they come up to Jerusalem because a consistent pattern that is emphasized in Luke 1 and 2, especially I guess in chapter 2, is that the family of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, faithfully followed the law of Moses. So they're going up to make sacrifices for this new child. Why? Because the law said so. The law of Moses said so. Now the backstory is found in Leviticus chapter 12. In Leviticus chapter 12, it tells us what sacrifices were to be made. And as you look there in Leviticus chapter 12, they were to offer a lamb for a burnt offering and a bird. It gives a couple of different birds. So a lamb and a bird was the norm. But God didn't want to price anybody out of doing the right thing. And so if you could not financially afford a lamb, and for some families to give up one of their lambs or to purchase a lamb was a price too dear. Maybe they didn't have a lamb that they could give, and they couldn't afford to purchase one from somebody else. So God didn't want them to prevent that to prevent them from being able to make sacrifices. So He gave an alternative sacrifice. If you couldn't afford a lamb, then instead of giving a lamb and a bird, you could just give two birds. Because throughout that history, those were relatively cheap and affordable. Now what's interesting as you think about, you had the normal lamb and bird, and then you had the alternative, alternative sacrifice if you couldn't afford it of two birds. It's interesting then when we jump back to Luke chapter 2, and we look at the portion of Leviticus 12 that is quoted here in the passage. It doesn't quote the portion of Leviticus chapter 12 that talks about the lamb and the bird. It quotes the portion of the passage that talks about the two birds. Which, I don't think it's a stretch to assume then, if he quoted that portion of the passage, what he's saying is, that's what they gave. They gave the two birds. Now here is the irony. John in John chapter 1 presents Jesus. I'm talking about John the Immerser in the book written by John the Apostle. And John chapter 1 said of Jesus, Behold 
the Lamb of God. In verse 29 he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one great Lamb of sacrifice for all time. But it is ironic that the family who would raise the Lamb of God was so poor that they couldn't afford the Lamb of sacrifice to sacrifice for the Lamb of God. They had to take the poor sacrifice route. In other words, when God was choosing who He would entrust the Messiah to, He didn't put Him into a family with money. He actually put Him into a family that didn't have a lot of money. And a lot of times as we focus on what we do as parents, we think about financial things. And a lot of times I've heard this phrase, we want to give our children what we didn't have when we were kids. And what we were talking about is we were talking about things. We were talking about stuff. That's what we would say when I was growing up. We want them to be able to eat what we didn't eat and wear what we didn't wear. And the problem is in this effort to give them what we didn't have as kids, we often don't give them what we did have as kids, and that is parents who modeled faith in front of us and made faith the center of the home and the most important thing, and everything we did as a family revolved around that. God didn't look for a man with finances. God owns a sheep on a thousand hills. God has the finances. God wasn't looking for a father with finances. He was looking for a father with faith. If we jump from Luke back to Matthew chapter 1, Joseph has been told that Mary is pregnant. He knows. She's told him she's pregnant. In the middle of the night, an angel comes to him and says, this child is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, I want you to think about when Mary first comes to Joseph. Imagine that you're engaged and a month before the wedding, we don't have any idea of the timetable here, but let's just imagine... If, some, if your fiancé comes to you a month before the wedding and says, I'm pregnant and it's God's fault. Do you believe her? Because that's what's happened. Mary says, uh, I'm pregnant. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've never been with anybody else. If you're Joseph, do you believe her? No. I don't know that any of, in this room, any of us in this room believe that. But then an angel appears to him and says... Basically, she told you the truth. And I cannot but imagine what it was like for Joseph when he realized that. Now, I just want to say something here that, that here's a principle that probably will help all husbands to have a good marriage. I was talking to brother and sister back here who have been married. All oh, Y'all haven't made it to 73 yet, have you? Yet 72? Have you made 73? 72, on their way to 73. We were talking about what's the key to being married 72 years. Don't die and don't divorce, I think is what y'all said. Here's another little tip that Joseph is learning in this vision. Most of the time, she's right. Okay, I'll let y'all sink that in a minute. See, Mary said, I'm pregnant. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't believe her. How do I know that? Because he was making preparations to divorce her. But then the angel came and said, Mary was telling you the truth. This really is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I cannot but wonder of the emotional turmoil inside of him as he went from feeling betrayed 
to realizing that in essence he had betrayed her. He didn't trust her. From feeling that she had broken the trust between them to realizing that he had broken the trust between them by not trusting her word. And what's interesting to me is the text says that he awoke from his sleep and did exactly what the angel said. That embodies how Joseph did things. God said do it. He's going to do it. Uh, in the movie The Nativity, there's this scene where Mary and Joseph, and one of the, the interesting things about that movie is the producers are at least trying, I don't know if it's how it really was, they're at least trying to explore the relationship between Mary and Joseph. And often that's not what's focused on when you look at the birth of the Messiah. But they're on their way to Bethlehem, and they stop for the night. Ironically, as they depicted in the movie, this is not found in the Bible. They sit down and they're... Uh, surrounded by shepherds. And so they are sitting around a campfire, and you know they're about to be new parents, and they're talking about what lies ahead of them. This is their first child, and they're wrestling with all of that. And the actor who's playing the role of Joseph makes a, an incredible statement to me. He says, I wonder if I will even be able to teach him anything. I mean, just think about that. I, I don't care what your background or your training is. What, what in the world could I teach the Messiah? Imagine you're Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth, and you're tasked with raising God the Son. And I can imagine him wrestling with, well, what can I offer? I offer? What can I do? The overwhelming weight that was given to him just had to be suffocating. Yet if God said to do it, he did it. And when the angel came again, a message came again to him in the night and said, there's basically been a hit put on him by Pharaoh and you need to get your family and take off to Egypt. Notice what the text said he did. He got up while it was dark. He didn't even wait for the sun to rise and took off to Egypt. Okay, I want you to imagine that God comes to you and says, I want you to walk out of the auditorium. I want you to get in your car. I want you to drive to the closest airport. And when you get there, there will be tickets for you to go to Iraq. And you and your family just get on the plane and we'll take care of things when you get there. Would that require some faith? God comes to him in the middle of the night and says, the, the boy's life is being threatened. I need you to travel hundreds of miles by hoof and by sandal to Egypt. The guy struggled to make a living in the promised land. He didn't even have enough money for the lamb of sacrifice living in Nazareth. How in the world was he going to travel hundreds of miles and survive in Egypt? My suspicion is it's by gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you have faith, God will provide the finances. As I look at Joseph, I see a man of commandments and commitment. A man who put God first, who put his family above himself, who was willing to go the extra mile to do the right thing. Would he choose me? When I graduated with my last degree, my girls got me an Amazon gift card because I, for many, many years, all the books I read were for assignments. And a lot of you here who are teachers and students, you can maybe feel my pain. And so I, I said, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go back to reading Louis L'Amour when I graduate. It's kind of a promise to myself to keep me going. And so my girls gave me an Amazon gift card, and I did find me a, buy me a few uh, 
a little more books, but at my heart, I'm, I'm a preacher, so I had to buy a commentary or two as well. And so I needed one commentary to finish the New Testament set of the Expositor's Bible commentary series, and so I needed the book of Luke. So I went online through the Amazon used subsidiaries where you can buy a used copy, and I bought or ordered uh, Walter Leefield's commentary on Luke. So I ordered it, came in the mail, I was all excited about it. And uh, Anyway, I was actually working on a lesson at some point after that, and I pulled out that commentary. I said, I want to see what he says about this. There's some background information I wanted to look at as far as the culture of the first century. I said, well, let's just see what he's unearthed. So I opened it up, and of course on the cover... It says, Walter Leefield, Luke, etc. Well, I open it up and the title page says, D.A. Carson, Matthew chapters 1 through 12. And I thought, that is just weird. They messed up the cover page. And then I keep turning and what I find out is, is the cover of the book is Walter Leefield, Gospel of Luke. But the entire inside of the book was D.A. Carson, Matthew chapters 1 through 12, which drove home that saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Now here's why I mention that. I think a lot of people in the first century might have judged Mary's book by her cover. Before I elaborate on that, let me just talk about the angel and her answer. In Luke chapter 1, we find the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her in essence that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. In the text, Luke wants to establish the connection to the family of David uh, emphasis here is on the fact this is the great king that is coming. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. So that's what he's trying to emphasize here. And so the angel comes to him, greeting favored one, and it says she was perplexed. Now, how about you? Has anybody had an angel talk to them lately? Because like it's been like 54 years. I'm only 54 years old. I've never had an angel talk to me. So can you imagine if an angel talks to you? And so I find it a little bit of an understatement. An angel comes to her and it just says she was perplexed. I would have been way beyond perplexed if an angel comes and talks to me. And so she's trying to figure out, okay, what do you mean? She, she's perplexed because of what he said. What did he say? He said, you're the favored one. What do you mean I'm the favored one? Well, he goes on to tell her how she's favored. She's going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. From my understanding of reading about the first century culture and even the New Testament, that a faithful Orthodox Jew in the first century, a Jewish woman, her dream would be the mother of the Messiah. Jews in the first century wanted to be here when the Messiah arrived, and the ladies wanted to get to be the mother of the Messiah. So what I'm trying to say is, the dream of most of the Jewish women who at least faithfully followed the Old Testament in the first century, their dream was about to come true for Mary. You are going to have a child. His name is going to be Jesus. In fact, you can find that also if you go over to Matthew chapter 1. They're told to call Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. If we look at John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word. We forget that Jesus was just the name that the eternal Son went by when He lived here on earth. Why did He go by that name? Because it was His mission. His name means... Yahweh saves or salvation is of the Lord. And so he says you shall name him salvation is of the Lord because he's the Lord's salvation. He's here to save the world. So every time you said his name, you said his purpose. And so he says you're going to be the mother of the one who's going to save the world. And then look at what she says in verse 34. How can this be? I've never been with a man is the idea of what she's saying. Now what's interesting, if you back up to verse 18, you have a similar statement. 
found on the lips of an older priest by the name of Zacharias. And that older priest in verse 18 is going to say what kind of sounds like what Mary said in verse 34. He says, how will I know this for certain? Now, if we were to back up and read the account of Zacharias being told he's going to be the father of John the Immerser, he was eventually made to where he couldn't speak for nine months because he, his question was a question of doubt. And so it kind of looks like Mary's doubting. So is that what's going on here? Well, let's let the Bible tell us. I, I believe with all of my heart that the Bible is its own best commentary. So if I back up to the story of Zacharias, when Zacharias said, how, how will this be? How can I know this for certain? I find that the angel says that he was not allowed to speak because he didn't believe. Look at what it says in verse 20. Because you did not believe my words. The angel says, I did this because your question was a question of doubt. You didn't believe this could happen. But then as I move forward in the account and move to what happened after Mary was told she was going to be the mother of Jesus, she goes to her relative Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth at this time is about six months along, and she's going to have the one we would come to know as John the Immerser. Why might she have gone to him? Well, first of all, she's an older lady who's past the age of childbearing, who's pregnant and would likely need some help. But second of all, Elizabeth would be the one person on the whole planet who would believe Mary. When Mary shows up and says, I am pregnant and it's by the power of the Spirit, Elizabeth's going to say, you know, that happened to me about six months ago. And these women were the only two people on the planet that are going to know what each other's going through and can comfort each other and help each other. But what's interesting to me is the text says when she went to meet Elizabeth, it tells us in verse 44 that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit which seems to me to say that what she's about to say is inspired by the Spirit of God. And notice then what she says in verse 45. So in verse 41, she's filled with the Spirit. In verse 45, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So the angel said that the question that was asked by Zacharias was a question of doubt. Mary, filled with, or Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says that when Mary asked her question, she believed that the angel would do what he said he would do. So they both asked questions. One is a question of doubt, and the other is a question of curiosity. I want you to wrestle with something. How old do you picture Mary being in your mind? For most of my life, I picture she's just walked off the stage with a degree from a brotherhood school, and she's about 22, 23. A Jewish girl could marry at the age of 13. And my guess is oh, a lot of our young ladies and their mothers are cringing at this moment. But it looks like to me that the average Jewish girl in the first century married in their early to mid-teens. I personally don't picture Mary as older than 16 and could be as young as 13. But I don't know for sure. I'm just saying if she is like most of the other young ladies of that age, they married somewhere in their mid-teens. So I want you to think about what she's wrestling with. An angel is coming to this young teenage girl and saying, you are going to get to live the dream that all these other ladies want to live. And so this is just a young teenage girl with a curiosity saying, okay, I get it, 
but I've never been with a man. So exactly how are you going to do this? It's not will you do it. I just would like to know how you're going to do it. And so she's told it's going to come by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives a previous example in what happened to Elizabeth who's having a child past the age of childbearing. And then he says nothing will be impossible with God. And what's fascinating is that's very similar to what Abraham and Sarah were told back in Genesis chapter 18. And that maybe there he was not only saying God can do anything, but maybe he is alluding to a story that she may have been heard, had heard and had told to her in her home growing up. He's saying the Spirit of God's going to do this. He's already doing something amazing in Elizabeth's life. He's done amazing and other amazing things in other people's lives, like Elizabeth or like Sarah and Abraham. God has this. God has this. And so she just says, okay, I'm your slave. I am at your disposal. You just, you just tell me what to do. And I want you to think about what this means for her. Okay, that nice white wedding is over. Remember what we talked about in class? When Mary goes to her mom and says, Mom, I'm pregnant and it's not Joseph. God did it. Is Mary's mom going to believe her? Or her aunt's going to believe it? Are the other ladies in town going to believe it? Are the elders of the village going to believe it? No, none of them are going to believe it. And she is going to be labeled as an adulteress. The law of Moses says they legally could stone her. It doesn't seem that they practiced that in the first century. But she at least would have been marked, talked about, and ostracized. There are no more nice wedding showers at the local synagogue. There's no gathering of the cousins in the family for a nice get-together and celebration. There's no longer going to be smiles as she walks down the street and pats on the back for either her or Joseph. No longer is the village going to be excited. That's all going to be replaced with shame because she's going to be labeled as an adulteress. And imagine that you're 14 or 15 years old and this kind of weight is going to be laid on your shoulders. And yet, even though it could have been overwhelming and we might have run from it, she says, behold, I'm your slave. You just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. It's fascinating in Luke chapter 1. It wasn't the older preacher, elder priest. It wasn't Zacharias who showed the great faith. It was the young teenage girl that showed the great faith. Don't judge the book by its cover. Judge the book by the content of its heart and the content of its life. And this young girl not only embraced what was going to be put on her, when she came to Elizabeth, she began to sing praise to God in what we call the Magnificat. She actually thanked God for the privilege of being ridiculed. She thanked God for the opportunity to be an outcast. What would she think of us when we cower and back down on our responsibility to live for Jesus and to raise our children for Jesus? She put God first. She put her trust in God. And she was willing to sacrifice anything to be what God wanted her to be. Would He choose me? A family in New York in 2007 went to a yard sale. 
And they saw a white bowl. It's a nice looking bowl. Had a few designs on the outside, but, but had some pretty intricate designs on the inside of the bowl. So they bought it for $3. They brought it home and they put it on the mantle in their house. And for six years, it sat there on the mantle just being a discussion piece and an article to collect dust. Finally, as they began to look at it and think about how pretty it was, they began to think about how much craftsmanship had to go in, especially to designing the intricate design on the inside of the bowl. So they began to do some asking around about maybe where it came from and how it might have been made. Before they were finished, they found out that the bowl was a thousand years old, that it had been made in China during the Song Dynasty, there was only one other bowl like it in the world and it was in a museum. And they sold their $3 bowl for $2.2 million. For six years, they had no idea what they had. I would like to ask everybody in this room who can stand. I know we've got some babies. Who's 18 and down, would you stand up? Please, for just a minute. Pretty please. I'll beg if it helps. They live in your homes. They sit on our couches and around our tables. They play in the backyard. They're more valuable than a $2.2 million Song Dynasty bowl. Yet I'm afraid we treat them like they are. Just a $3 bowl from a yard sale. They just take up space and we're busy doing a million things, pursuing our careers, making our money. And often all along the way we're saying it's all about them, but we don't spend time with them. When we talk to them, when we love into their lives, when we share Jesus with them, that's when they know that we truly love them and value them. Thank you. I won't make you stand up any longer. What I want us to realize is that God is still looking for moms and dads to entrust His children to. Because the reality is, He made every single one of us. He made all of these children, and He, he wants every single one of them in heaven with Him. He doesn't want one single one left behind. So just as He made a choice to entrust Jesus to Mary and Joseph, I have been entrusted with the the lives and the faith of Katie and Hannah. And at the end of my life, it doesn't matter any, what position I've held, what amount is in my bank account, what my house looks like. At the end of my life, all that matters is that those two girls are in heaven with me and their mother. Can He trust me to do that? God is still looking for people He can trust. And one of the things we talked about in class is it's not about just moms and dads. You remember... The statistics say it's not just moms and dads that get the dots connected to the next generation. It's the whole congregation adopting them. I would like to challenge you, whether you've been married 72 years and you don't have children at home, or whether you're a, a single 35-year-old adult, or whether you're a 30-year-old with one small child, adopt these young people. Treat them like your own and help them to know Jesus because He wants them to come home and live with Him. 
If you're not a child of God, you've never expressed your faith in repentance, confession, and baptism. This, this church family would like to be a part, of, a part of you and you a part of it. We'd love for you to come and express your faith in baptism and put on Jesus. If you're struggling in your relationship with God, we're family. And just as we all pitch in and adopt these young people and help them, we ought to be there for each other. So whatever Satan has put in your heart to make an excuse so that you don't make your life right with God, if you're thinking about, I've not been the parent I ought to be and I ought to change, Satan right now is doing something to get you to stay in your seat. But don't stay in your seat. But instead, picture the Jesus is saying, I loved you enough to die on a cross for you. And I'll forgive you. Just come on back home. Right now as we stand and sing. Weary, tending a load of care. Are you a soul that's seeking rest from the burden you bear? Do you know, my Jesus? Do you know, my? Have you heard He loves you and that He will abide till the end? Who knows your disappointments? Who hears each time you cry? Who understands your heart aches who dries the tears from your eyes do you know my Jesus do you know my friend have you heard he loves you and that he will abide till the end before we have